Blog Talk Radio. This is Patty Hellstrand, and I thought I'd just wake you guys up with that music. <laughs> ah, this is Patty, and of course this is KWAD Radio, and we're on live today. We're talking about space. I know. That's a lot of space up there. So which part are we talking about? We're talking about all of it. Because, you know, we got we got a couple hours to talk. And we got this every every week, every Sunday, so, you know. You can talk about a lot of space in that time. It's Sunday. And we're exactly we're happy to be here. And hey, it's Arizona and we actually got rain today. I guess how did freeze over. <laughs> so we're we're here and we're talking about space. And our shows we will be looking at what is happening in space news? By space news, that's outer space news. Well, what's going on up and what's going up and who and what's coming down? And even some things that may be coming down the pike. We have Al here and Joe talking about the unique spin on the news. Good evening. Everybody or not, we're here. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, another week. Isn't it though? I mean, there's and the interesting thing is, is there's been a lot that's been happening this week. We've had a lot of things see their given their go ahead. We've had a few struggles that have peaked up new challenges um, and just a lot a lot of little stuff that's been been going on so without uh, further ado let's 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 first talk about you know how they get hold of us here okay you do that okay I'll do that (laughs) you know this is live this is live and that means that you guys can actually chime in and talk to us and yeah all you gotta do is call us. I mean, come on. How much charter can it be? So, seven one four two four two five one four five is a is the number. That's seven one four two four two five one four five. And if you come through the links, there's even chat. Yes. So you can chime in there on chat. Let us know questions, comments, thoughts. I'm watching for you. Yeah. So. Just to let you know that also in the chat information, that's just below the information about the show, uh, is where you're going to see all of the links that we're talking about today. And those are clickable links. And if you can't keep up, then copy them all into another file, and that way you can get back to it later. Uh, we're just going to just keep ramrodding through this, so we're not going to wait for you guys to be, you know, looking at these things and trying to keep up. But, you know, it's... Uh, we wanted to give you all the links that way you guys can look at this too. We're ready to go. Yeah, and I'm primed and fired right up. Well, on our, the first thing on our list tonight, uh, the commercial crew partners. Now, for those of you who 
may or may not be watching all of this stuff, uh, Sierra Nevada and SpaceX uh, have been the two primary people, as well as Boeing and ULA, as commercial crew partners through the NASA program trying to develop a um, working astronaut launch program with American-made parts, supplies, equipment, launchers, the whole shoot and match. Now, currently, just to bring everybody up to date, currently we depend on the Russians and their Soyuz ships to get our astronauts up to the International Space Station. Now, in the last few years, we've had SpaceX and we've had Orbital has come into play with their Antares rocket and Cygnus ship to be developing cargo and get it delivered to the ISS on American-made rockets that we can, you know, launch when we need, as well as the other NASA partners. Now, this last week, um, NASA and uh, its and the Congress and all that stuff finally got their act together, and SpaceX and Sierra Nevada, Sierra Nevada have until March 2015 to complete the milestones selected for the commercial crew integrated capability, which began back in 2012 of August. Now, these were expected to end on August 31st of this year. Now they get a break so that they can complete their milestones pretty much close to the schedule that we've been seeing them working with. So this is, this is exciting. Gives them the break they've been looking for and needed. Um, and so they can continue to move forward. And we now know that the commercial crew program will continue to support them and help them develop these, these tools. <clears throat> also this week, the SLS, the Space Launch System, billed as the world's biggest rocket goes into full production and NASA gets closer to the, moon, to the Mars mission. Now, they signed a $2.8 billion contract this week. And the most powerful rocket ever built is on its way to sending people to the Red Planet. Now, right, that's, that's, that's fine, that's fine. Now, this is NASA's hugely expensive space launch system that has potentially two missions currently on the boards somewhere. We're at the very top. I NASA. already got that. Oh, okay. And one of these missions is is potentially an asteroid recovery and, and capture mission. Another is a mission to Mars. Uh, still in development. We're unsure if that will actually be the case. Um, but with the signing of the $2.8 billion contract this week, um, they begin production and begin moving towards actually completing the ship. Boeing signed the contract, giving them the go-ahead to start full production of the core stage for the SLS, which is, of course, the most powerful rocket in history. And of course, the one thing I really don't like about this is in most of these articles, they're mentioning this statement that it's the most powerful rocket in history. Uh, come on. Give us a break. It may be, but how long before that's going to be challenged? We have a few articles coming up. 
that suggests that the Russians may be challenging that. Soon yeah, as it's always well. about who's got the big one. Well, I don't. <laughs> yeah, there is that. Who's got the biggest ones? <laughs> Here's something that we spotted that, that I found rather interesting. Um, in Ariane space workers staged a walkout uh, back on July 8th, 30-minute work stoppage to express their anxiety about the company's future, given what's been going on with industrial and government calls for an overhaul of Europe's launch sector. Now, this is, this is ESA and Ariane space that develops the European launcher for sending the, all of their stuff up into orbit and into space missions and so forth. Now, Ariane builder Airbus Defense and Space Group and engine builder Safran, I think, have postponed, have proposed, not postponed, to create a joint venture company to streamline Europe's rocket sector and cut costs. Now, they have said their proposed undertaking, which they suggested would only occur if ESA governments accept their Ariane 6 design and proposal. Likely would be enlarged to include every France's-based Ariane space and ultimately the other Ariane industrial contractor. So basically it's a big shakeup. And Safran and Airbus um, are really looking to, to revamp and, and restructure the whole program over in Europe. So uh, how that plays out is going to be real interesting. Um, but yeah, everybody's nervous over there. Kind of like everybody was nervous over here before the shuttles were retired. A lot of things happened and, and people were really nervous about what was actually going to happen and we ultimately, they, they did indeed um, retire the shuttles. Now, we get to some, inform some information about the Russians have, interestingly, uh, several development programs going on right now, I found out this week. One of which, the Angara. Um, and also, the upgraded Soyuz. Now, the Soyuz has, uh, and the Russians have been upgrading the, the Soyuz system to a Soyuz 2 series rocket. And some of these are actually already in use for satellite launches from the Baikonur in Kazakhstan and the ESA launch facility in Guyana. But now the rocket is set to begin launching unmanned progress resupply vehicles to the ISS. And if all goes well, the Soyuz 2 rockets may begin transporting astronauts and cosmonauts to the station aboard Soyuz as early as 2016. Now, what this will mean is they're going to phase out the older Soyuz rockets for most, if not all, of the space station runs. Now, in addition to that, I mentioned the Angara a minute ago. Angara was recently launched in Russia, and, whoa, I lost my place. Boy, I am well, in I trouble. Think, I, think there's a, I think there's a missing part of that sentence. That I'm yeah, I know that you don't usually end the sentence with and. Yeah. <laughs> I generally try not to do that, um, because that can be confusing. And then you're waiting, and you're waiting. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Just a few little things to deal with. Well, anyway, let me back up. We talked about the Soyuz upgrades uh, and all these kind of things. Angara is a new rocket that Russia is working to set up primarily for satellite launches at this point. 
They could be developing it for, for more advanced and, and heavier launches later on down the road. But here's the interesting. Angara has had some troubles in the last month or so in getting off the ground. So has SpaceX recently. We've had one launch that's delayed at least twice. Um, and they both represent, and there's, there's, oh, I don't have a link there. Yeah, I was wondering. Yeah. That's why I go oh, like that. Oh, yeah. I thought maybe you. That's, I was, that's why you said and. And you know, I was, I was researching this because one of the things that we don't <laughs> have. That's what the and's about. That's what the and's about. I was researching this when, when, when I ran out of time. But SpaceX has been having challenges. We've had a couple of delays for the Orbcom that just recently got off the ground. We've had Angara has been having delays. The Soyuz 2, um, incremental upgrade as it is, has also been suffering challenges, and also the old Soyuz. I mean, the entire launch system has been experiencing challenges, the likes of it we haven't seen in quite a while. Well, do you think perhaps because they are getting older? I think that's part of the problem. I know um, and some of the articles and some of, some of the posts that are out there um, address that. They talk about those things. But they also talk about some of the other things. That, that the thing to remember is these rockets, these things are hugely complicated. And to and keep these things these maintained. Young punks know what they're doing? Well, I, I think some of it is that, or some people are trying to shake, take shortcuts or there are people trying to do new things with old stuff and not remembering that that may not work. Mm -hmm. um, as far as the Angara rocket goes, it, um, and basically signaling that they may still have a horse in the space race after decades of disappointment. Now, lifted off from the Plesetsk Cosmodrome near Ang... Okay. Boy, these Russian names are a mouthful. <laughs> Arkhangelsk in Russia's far north and flew for 25 minutes on a suborbital trajectory before landing at the Kura test range in the far eastern Kamchatka Peninsula. I think I got that one right at least. Okay. Um, it's an interesting article. They talk about um, the intent for the Angara rocket, uh, its goals, and things like this. This is their first uh, launch in quite a while. Uh, again, just a reference launch to testing uh, the performance and things like that. Um, so moving on into private space. Private space. Yeah, you're going for a little humor. <laughs> you know, I tell you what though, this humidity in the air tonight's got got me a headache that just does not want to heat up. Yeah. You know, but it got me really drowsy. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that. Um, so, but anyway. Moving on, private cargo vessel launching to space station Saturday. So, um, and I was trying to find an article to determine whether it actually got off the ground, and I didn't find one. They were scheduled to launch um, early Saturday. I'm sorry, Saturday afternoon at one o'clock Eastern, mm. and scheduled to arrive at the ISS on Tuesday morning. It's packed with 3,600 pounds of supplies, spare parts, science experiments, and among the cargo are some tiny Earth-observing satellites built by San Francisco-based Planet Labs. Now, Planet Labs is interesting, and we're going to be talking about them a little bit later as well. The cargo craft will berth at the ISS for about 40 days, after which they'll load it up with trash and send it off to burn up in the atmosphere. And, and you know, it's 
Again. That is such another such such a waste, such a waste. Um, they would not get an A on recycling. No, they would not. In other news, with the Federal Aviation Administration has given SpaceX the go-ahead, uh, a record of decision. A critical step paves the way for licensing launch activity at Boca Chica Beach in Cameron County, Texas, I believe. This clearance allows them to apply for licenses with the FAA to launch Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy launch rockets, which could also carry the Dragon capsule and a variety of smaller reusable suborbital launch vehicles from the world's first private commercial vertical launch site. Now, they're hoping to develop 12 launches a year through at least 2025, carrying payload to the ISS. So we'll have to see how that works out. Now, so far, SpaceX hasn't actually made their, their target goals in launch frequency over the last couple of years. They're getting there. That's there. Oh, there's no link there. Boy, I missed Boy, a link. Oh, you are just falling behind here, man. I guess I am. I'm going like, okay, is that both of them go to? But then you told me the other one was supposed to have two links, and then I'm going like, what's that? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, sorry, people, the, the one I just gave you is actually for that text. Just for the text <laughs> one. And as soon as Al can give me this new one. Send it over to Facebook and I'll grab it. Um, we'll get the right link up there. You know, I don't think it has anything to do with space balloons, okay? No, we'll get to that. Uh, that doesn't sound like, uh, what is space balloons have to do with what you're talking about here? That's not good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just going to put it in and say... Oh, I'm going to put it in. Okay, yeah, that's fine. We're using a slightly different system here today. Overall, it seems to be working well. Uh, we got just a few glitches as we as we uh, move forward. Um, <laughs> I think it's, I think it's uh, <laughs> human error. Human error. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There it is. There it is. Okay. Uh, moving on. You know, I I remember doing an essay um, some time ago when Mr. Baumgartner did his skydiving jump from 25 miles up. And I remember I was struck, uh, not by him, <laughs> but rather by the idea that, that this could lead us into the next extreme sport. Yeah. And that, you know, and I, and I talked in the essay about everything from diving through hoops, uh, adding winglets to the, the, the skydiving suit, to moving on and even going forward and adding... Uh, the next step of such an extreme sport to go from uh, high altitude diving to suborbital diving. Yes, you did. Nice and and cool. then orbital diving, which would actually also include the possibility of atmospheric surfing. I you know, know take, a, kind of take diving, a, but I will bring it up. Yeah, 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 yeah. You always got to turn it that way. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Boy. But... And we talked about a lot of these things, and so this, this article actually lifted my spirits quite a bit. Um, for $75,000, you will soon be able to, theoretically, buy a ticket for an edge-of-space balloon ride. The FAA has actually approved the proposal. You can see an animation video of the FAA-approved balloon ride. Uh, designs for the World View Enterprises 
Space-qualified capsule have been classified as a commercial space system by the FAA. And the ticket price is 35000 will offer you 19 miles up into the atmosphere. So they won't be going quite as high as, as Mr. Baumgartner, but they'll be going close enough. Now, I'm going to next talk about one of the next things which kind of relates to this in a, in a dim way. And that is, is that we've been seeing uh, some increases in funding levels in uh, uh, crowdfunding campaigns. Oh. Back I last summer, yeah, last summer, Planetary Resources raised $1.5 million through a 30-day campaign on Kickstarter. Now, wow. that funding is going to be used to develop a version of its ARCID series of spacecraft that will serve as a publicly accessible space telescope. Now, the first thing here that really caught my attention was is that this space telescope will be available via the Internet for people to sign up and use. At least I believe that's what they, how it was described. Use or just, or just watch. Yeah. Then the effort on that Kickstarter campaign was the largest space-related crowdfunding effort ever and among the largest of any kind to date. Ever. Now, according to Wikipedia, list of such now. efforts it was also the 39th largest ever so far as of this week. So yeah. it's not the biggest that's okay. gone by, but it is in the running. Yeah, cool. So, I mean, you've got boatloads of stuff doing here, and the interesting thing was I saw an article. I wonder if I've got it here. Do I have it is that here? that the one on related space? No, there was another article that talked about um, crowdfunding, and I think I missed it. I think I missed it. Um, yeah, I missed it. I don't know where it went. I dropped it out of my browser list. But the thing was, is it talked about there are a group of students who are either considering or who have also started a crowdfunding campaign for a Mars mission. I mean, we're talking like multiple millions of dollars. Serious, serious, yeah, serious cash. So there's, there's a lot of stuff going on. Stuff is really starting to heat up. I mean, between between the high-altitude balloon tourist trips, mm -hmm. between Virgin Galactic, uh, X-Core, um, and, and who'd have thunk a couple of years ago that people would be taking balloons up to the edge of space? I know. And this, is, this is very We've interesting. We've been blaming things on balloons for years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, in the related tech Those section are just tonight... Balloons. Those are UFOs. Come on. <laughs> you remember I talked about this riding the balloon, tourist thing going up, and we talked about the possibility of high-altitude diving yeah. and extreme sports. Well, check this out. Now, I actually saw a reference to this last year, and that's why I say it triggered my thoughts on that essay for yeah, yeah. new space-based extreme sports. Well, check this out. The RL Mark VI is reminiscent of the suit used by Tony Stark in the Iron Man films and also comes oh. with high-tech augmented reality goggles, power gloves, movement gyros, and is made using a commercial spacesuit. And without a parachute. Without a parachute. So go figure. Now, but what they do add is they add uh, uh, rocket boots. Yeah, I saw that. Now, that just actually, that is just kick-ass. 
right. These that guys, Solar System Express out of Baltimore and biomedical design company Juxtopia, want to release a production model by 2016, which means we could have extreme sports space divers within a couple of years. Justin Timberlake, just to let you know, you can be the first one there. <laughs> and you know, he's Felix, in the, he's in another three you know, sports show. Even, even, and, and, and Felix Baumgartner, I don't think Felix Baumgartner is going to be out, outdone. I, I really don't. I think no, we're going to see I'm him surprised. again. And uh, Justin has already tried it, man. Oh, geez. So anyway, now uh, in other news, um, another kick local successful Kickstarter campaign was the quest to recapture the ISEE3 reboot project. And the idea was to capture that uh, and capture and communicate and then direct that satellite, which has been in a way wide orbit around the sun. And I would bring, make a wide orbit around the sun, too, if I <laughs> But their goal has been to... Uh, to first recommunicate, reconnect, then recommunicate with the satellite. That they did. Then they wanted to run some diagnostics and double check some other things. They did that. Then their their next step was to attempt to fire the engines to reorient its orbit to get it into position between the Earth and the Sun. Now, uh, this past week they ran into some snags. So, of course. and I haven't read if they succeeded or not. But I think, um, okay, they did succeed in firing the engines, and they got the roll remover, maneuver done, but they had to really adjust it. So partially successful then. Yeah, partially successful. That's a good try. And, and the thing of it is, um, I think overall, there's a second link on there that'll show up if you'll refresh. Um, they did succeed in firing the engines. They ran into some rather stiff issues uh, earlier in the week when they were trying to get to it uh, because they were having problems and weren't sure if they were short on fuel or if the valves weren't opening. And so they had to, they, they just kept working on it, but ultimately um, they ended up increasing their role and revolutions and all that kind of space navigation stuff and uh, made the satellite fire its engines. Um, but they've still got the next step of getting the trajectory to change. So they'll be working on that um, in the next few days as well. And that was as of Wednesday, Wednesday, July 9th. And I don't think... Yeah. So as of Wednesday, they'd actually made some good progress. Here's some something else new. Now, until now, there existed virtually no dedicated launcher capacity in the small satellite industry to, dis to deliver these guys' respective payloads to orbit. Now, that's co-founder Michael Blum said in a statement about... Firefly, which will be the first rocket, will be cheap enough for a single company to book a flight. And what they're looking at is it's a small 25 employee companies not said when they plan to release uh, to complete their Alpha rocket, 
but they wrote in January they expect to launch their first rocket in 2017. Firefly will focus on launching constellations of small satellites, much like the 28 to 13 pound satellites Planet Labs launched in January up to the ISS. Now, some additional news. They're tinkering with this idea of a magnetic field to protect astronauts from radiation. And, you know, of course, this is all about the fact that shielding from radiation in space is way different than having to think about it here on Earth, or for that matter, on Mars. Because you've got, you've got two separate issues here. Yeah. You've got solar radiation from solar flares, which are basically charged particles, and, and those have one set of issues, and they come in, and, and those are a little easier to shield from. But then you've got these galactic cosmic rays, GCRs. These suckers are nasty. These guys are going fast enough to generally penetrate most things that we've been dealing with. And so far, the only real shielding that anybody's come up with that I've heard that really does well is basically water. But you've got to have like nine feet of it, three meters, nine feet in that range around your living space in order to shield enough from these guys. I hope I've got those numbers right because I'm pulling those off the top of my head from, from my readings. But basically, they talk about an alternative, magnetic field, uh, and this group called the European Union Project Space Radiation Superconductive Shield says their technology will solve the issue. Oh, yeah. And they're seeking academic collaborations to make that happen. The SR2S shield will provide an intense magnetic field, supposedly three times stronger than the Earth's field, and will be confined around the spacecraft. So, something for us to keep an eye on. It could be a pipe dream. It could be legit. Commercial for that in the future. Sure. Get your own personal magnetic field right now. (laughs) Yeah. And you'll glow in the dark before you get it hit any radiation. Because if you don't want to glow in the dark, you've got to hit your own personal. (laughs) (laughs) Are you ready to get one for your cat and dog too? (laughs) All right. I I wanted to to recap a couple of things. Uh, a lot of times what we're seeing is, is we get a lot of news about um, these guys talking about the various projects. We're talking about the uh, missions, SpaceX, XCOR. These are companies with, with big wallets. Well, what we don't know a lot of times is how can we participate? Well, there's a boatload of groups on Facebook. There's a boatload of them in Yahoo, a boatload of them on, on uh Google groups, but most of these are discussion groups. Right. If you really want to get out and be active, you've got uh, quite a quite a selection. Um, you can apply for a mission in an analog Mars station. Um, you putting these links up too? Yes, it is. Yeah, uh, the Mars Society operates. I think it's two different Mars analog stations. Um, check out the links. They they talk about all the requirements. They talk about um, the options, what's expected. What uh, eventually you get to the point where they talk about what it what it costs. But they've actually got two stations. One's in uh, southern Utah, and the other one I want to say is up in Canada somewhere. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, but I can't I can't be sure because I didn't I didn't save that information. 
The other one is we've got these new things out there. You've got Mars One. You've got the Mars Initiative. Um, the Mars Society also works uh, from Dr. Zuprin's Mars Drive. There are opportunities to participate within the various groups, Mars Society, uh, Planetary Society. Of course, they just they're they're launching that uh, the next set of uh, their small sat constellation. So that's that's pretty exciting. Um, but if you're not really in a bent to get involved in real space, <laughs> you can always that's check out. What? Yeah. Oh well, uh, there's. There's always the... Uh, you know, the, the real the, space, and you can get some make-believe space. Well, how about some couch space or some barbecue space or some tailgate space, space. where you can serve celestial suds? Oh, oh yeah. We talked about this. I, yeah, I'm not sure if it was last week or week before, but... Um, last week was... Bell's Brewery space up suds. in Michigan yeah. is pioneering a limited edition set of beers based on the famous orchestral suite, uh, Gustav Holz. Uh, called The Planets, okay. and so they've got uh, a group of beers going to be coming out starting in, um, oh gosh, when do they start? So you can get drunk uh, and... This August, they're starting the very first one. And educate yourself all at the same time. There you go. Sure. Become involved. Be Become a part involved. of stuff. Be a part of space. <laughs> oh. Um, additionally... I got a few other items here. Oh no! Oh yeah, that I found as we were um, getting ready to come online, and I want to share these with you. So I'm going to pass these oh, links on that. to uh, here. to I her. I, I, um, I am behind in giving you guys the space sud, so. Well, get it up there, girl. I must have been drinking. <laughs> yeah, you weren't drinking this stuff. I wish. <laughs> I can go for a beer right now. I don't know. It's kind of weird. Yeah. All right. First one we've got covered is, is uh, again, from Europe, international news. ESA has developed a dropship quadcopter. quadcopter. Now, this is not exactly the same thing that Amazon's been working on. But it does bear a simple resemblance to it. Although, you know, Amazon's really pumped theirs out, I'll tell you. Did you happen to see the picture of that this last week? They had a, they had a new picture out there. Man, that thing looked pretty badass. Amazon. Yeah, Amazon. You know, their, their, their delivery quadcopter they, they've been talking about for a while. Uh, they're punks, I know. Yeah, well, I mean, let's not get mean. <laughs> but uh, anyway, ESA's been, ESA has... Uh, started developing a quadcopter dropship, mm. and for some of us, we remember how the last rover went down. Oh, that's interesting. That was dropped similarly. Uh, it had a mothership that carried the rover down or the rover package, and then at a certain height, it fired rockets that slowed its descent from the parachute, and then let it release the rover to to land comfortably. Well, this quadcopter is. Huh? I think the sci-fi movie. Well, there you go. Um, this quadcopter is another option um, and is now demonstrating as part of their Star Tiger Dropter project. And 
again, it's just, it's just to be a, a, another way to be safe and effective to lower rover onto a portion of the rocky Martian surface. And if you've got an atmosphere, this thing could become quite prolific and productive. Iridium and SpaceX have completed. Can stuff here? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't talk about it unless what? you give me the link, mister. Okay, okay. <laughs> Keeping on top of you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I, I need to change something here. Let's see. How do I get into these? Let's right see. here. There we go. That's what I want. There we go. That's where I need to be. Okay. Can we read it better? Now. Iridium Communications and SpaceX, back on the 3rd, announced their completion of dispenser qualification testing for the next constellation. Now, it's a mission-unique assembly, holds satellites during launch, and manages the time separation from the rocket so that each satellite gets into its proper spot. Now, SpaceX is charged with delivering the majority of satellites for, it, uh, for Iridium into their lower Earth orbit, and their Falcon 9's got a will carry 10 satellites. In total, they're going to be launching 70 satellites over the planned period of two years. So this is actually a private customer for SpaceX. So, you know, SpaceX isn't all about just the government contracts. And this is something that I, I know a lot of people don't realize. Um, SpaceX has on their manifest almost a, more private customers than they do NASA customer launches. Well, they, they got to in order to stay viable, you know? Well, yeah. And I, and I think that's exciting that SpaceX has, has uh, really um, made that effort. Uh, because, you know, it's I don't think it's something that they did as a function of being different from everybody else. Um, but I think it was something that, you know, Elon did primarily because if you're going to be a private rocket company, you've got to serve a private rocket market. Mm, well, sure. And this is where I think Elon Musk shines above the rest. He's a businessman. He's a businessman, and he understands that... Um, That's a good equilibrium of... of right. Yeah. Now, in other private space news, Maston Space Systems, Mojave, California... Wow, we haven't heard about them for a while. Well, yeah. Well, they're they're a smaller space company. They do space systems. They're they're not into developing rockets, though they have developed a few for the Google X Prize and the Google Land Space Lander Prize. Um, but they've just recently won a contract, three million dollars, for work on DARPA's XS One program. Now, the XS One program it wants to demonstrate another reusable first stage launch vehicle capable of carrying and deploying upper stage that inserts eh, three to 5,000 pound payloads into LEO. Now, it's supposed to be able to perform with aircraft-like operations, a lot like the space shuttle. So we're looking at something that's going to be basically scale down the shuttle. Mm -hmm. Bigger than Lynx from XCOR, but probably um, a lot smaller than the space shuttle itself. So check out that article. Um, some interesting reading there. Read up on Maston. They're doing some exciting things with uh, uh, their recent lander uh, project and Google 
Google Lunar X Prize. So we're doing a lot of fun stuff there as well. Um, yeah. Come on, you're falling behind. Did you catch it? Hey. Why don't you go over to your messages area and it'll be easier to see. things 
that we're looking at, such as going to the moon and, again, the trips to Mars. Now, here's another article that I found that I thought was really interesting. <laughs> Who would have thought you would find something on burrowing frogs? <laughs> Now, somebody came up and they decided to do, right, and this is, this is really fun. I, I love the way they did this. They put this blog post out on July 4th, Independence Day. And what it is, the recipe for space colonations and the tools needed to conquer the universe, okay? And, of course, they start out with the usual thing, if humans are ever going to colonize space, blah, 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 blah. To live healthy, we need to develop technology to be able to simulate gravity, yada, 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 nanosensors, we need ways, and of course they've, they've generated this report called Technological Breakthroughs for Scientific Progress, also called Tech Break. Now I've actually scanned through the report, it's some interesting reason, uh, interesting um, materials, some, some great reading, uh, and they talk about some of the things that we're definitely going to need uh, as we move out into space. Uh, especially things like uh, artificial gravity. We're going to need some mechanism to prolong um, our functionality through low gravity because we're not going to be able to do um, high levels of artificial gravity for a while. We can do short stints, and that'll be good. But we're going to have to develop hibernation. We're also going to have to develop... Um, just the medical techniques of dealing with the day-to-day -day injuries, sprains, little cuts and bruises that are going to happen over time. And so this is this covers quite a few items in those categories um, and some of the assets that we're going to be needing to address. So lots of interesting reading. And the website, actually, they, they're, they're pretty wide uh, breadth of information on the website. So check that out. Now, then we have this one, which is in the same group as this last one. This guy, these guys went to a lot of work, uh, and they created uh, an infographic that talks about the costs of doing different things in space. For example, the cost of space travel itself. In other words, to send one pound of anything into space, uh, it costs $2,432 to send it to the ISS. Well, you knew eventually the number of crunchers we're going to get. Oh, well, sure. Now, con contrasting that, it costs, according to these numbers, $908,173 a pound to send that dollars to send that same pound out to Mars. But what I don't understand is to get something on the lunar surface, which is way closer, they're saying it's going to cost $1,312.74 uh, to get that same pound to the moon. Why does it cost more to go to the moon? I don't understand. Well, that, that's what I would ask. I, w I would question that. I mean, if yeah. based on NASA information, well, duh. They yeah. overcharge everything. Right. Now, and somebody is trying to 
So yeah, so there's there's some questions here that I really don't understand. Yeah. Now, if you're going to Mars, you're going to put a lander. You've got to have a lander. You've got to have all your your gear and supplies for, or even just power sources and and fuel to get to Mars. With the moon, I, I really don't understand why it would cost more to go to the moon than it would to go to Mars. So that's that's definitely something. And now. But here we go, the cost of traveling to the moon. Now, while NASA is pondering its options, uh, we've got several companies. If you talk to Space Adventures, it costs $0.3 billion to do their Alpha mission to the moon. So if you talk to Golden Spike, it's $1.5 billion to get their Atlas V combined with SpaceX mission to the moon. If you talk to NASA, it's going to cost $2.0 billion to get the SLS Orion capsule and the Altair lunar lander to the moon. So this is interesting. They definitely, they've broken down, they've done some homework, they've done a lot of stuff here. But now that now when we look at the cost of shelter, okay, mm -hmm. if you look at shelter for a lunar base, NASA has estimated the cost of just the shelter at $7.35 billion for a four-person NASA lunar base. But you know, I've I've done a lot of studying on that, and that lunar base. You got to remember that's for a maximum, absolute maximum of a 14-day stay. That's a big waste of money. That's that's a whole that's a host of big waste yeah. money. Now here's the other thing: the annual rent of a 110 meter cubed living space in a modified Bigelow Aerospace BA-330 MDS for six people costs $456 million. And I know that Bigelow already has worked out some of the issues of getting those habitats on the surface of the moon. So NASA cost to put something on the moon, $7.35 billion. A BA-330 habitat? For six people, for the year, for a year stay, is four hundred fifty-six million. Now that's that's huge. That seven point three five billion is just to build a habitat for NASA for a two-week stay. So now, now let's see. You get up there. Now you've got to spend time and money on food. NASA is saying it'll cost you five point nine billion to purchase and transport food. And I'm presuming that that includes water and, and the other things to keep your food supply to get to the moon. And that's for a year's delivery of 800,000 calories to survive. Mm -hmm. Golden Spike, on the other hand, says we might be able to do that for $1.7 billion. So that's, that's interesting. Now, when we talk about water, okay, that's an interesting okay. difference. NASA says it'll cost $43 billion to carry 10.6 tons of water a year to the moon. Golden Spike thinks they can do it for $13 billion. But when I see this one, I say, okay, wait a minute. Hold on just a minute. Why would you Hold need to send 10.6 tons of water a year to the moon? Right. Why aren't they recycling it? Why aren't they factoring this? That's just it. They're not. They're considering what it's going to cost. Well, they're without considering recycling without yeah. finding water. So they're having there. to send multiple ships 
to the moon. And I, and I think that's just absolute fallacy. Sure. I really do not believe that. We're going to be covering, and this is kind of part of our transition into our commentary section. Makes I'm going to be using this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Makes you want to do a whole lot. Um, <laughs> and they've got... And in you this, know what? We can recycle thing. that spit, too. That's right. <laughs> And they've got they've got some other comparisons down through the infographic. Definitely some great reading. They even show some of the uh, resources that they took some of the information from. And we'll be talking a little bit more about this and some of my own perspective in our commentary section tonight. So stay tuned for that. Uh, in a little bit of a blast from the past, uh, the Soviets. Let me make sure this isn't a real blast from the past. When is this? Okay. Um, They've got some neat pictures. Uh, some of us may remember that the Russians built a space shuttle. Yeah, I know, I know. Just, just hold your horses here. Okay. We'll get to that in a minute. Okay. The Russians built a space shuttle. Now, the only one that's really left of the Buran is, I believe, a life-size model. I think it's the only one they've got left that's in any decent shape. Uh, and right now... Uh, on actually back on July 5th. Quirky Park. Well, that's quirky, quirky Central Park. I mean, there was for culture and recreation to yeah. the All Russian Exhibition Center through the streets of Moscow, and they moved the model for tests during the Buran. I'm getting. I'm reading two lines at once. The model was used for tests during the Buran program uh, way back in the 70s. I want to say, I think, mm -hmm. 70 early 80s. Um, and will be placed as a showpiece in one of the squares uh, after the actual Buran, the foreign flesh that was destroyed in an accident in 2002. So yeah, I believe this is the last uh, copy of the Buran that they have left. So uh, there's there's a couple of uh, full story links there. Um, you can check out this uh, brief piece in the Moscow Times. And again, it's it's just one of these little blasts from the past kind of what what were they now kind of thing and <laughs> but definitely some some uh, good stuff there so and with that we're going to take a break here uh, station identification yeah. and Al you ready for this? No. Why not? <laughs> you tried to pass it on yeah. Or I because for listeners on the live program here tonight, dial in at 714-242-5145. Challenge us. Question us. How dare you? We're Double on dog dare you. Double dog dare you. We're on Blog Talk Radio on the Internet. This is KWAD Radio. Okay, we're taking a very brief, uh, a brief identification here. Give me a little music.
This is K Wad Radio, and this is Patty Holstrand, and we are on live, and we're talking about space and everything in between. The next space show with Alan Joe. Hey, are we ready for our commentary? There you go, yeah. Welcome back, folks. Tonight, we our last news item tonight was... Uh, hey, 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 hey. 714-242-5145. I dare you to call. Challenges. Challenges. Or challenge him. I, <laughs> I'm just here for sake of pushing buttons. Well, okay. Question us. Challenge us. I dare you. The thing about it is, any news thing, you you can only cover things that you hear about or see 
a lot of what we get is is posted on the web in various different places. You know, you you've got a lot of news sources out there, and what we're trying to do is simply provide a single point that gives you an entry point for things that you may be interested in. We provide the links for the the core of the stories, but understand, I've actually uh, on most of these, I've checked um, other sources. And I try, don't always succeed, but I do try sometimes to try and get back to the original posted story. Uh, sometimes uh, with the number of things we go through, we don't always get to the original story, but uh, we do try and get pretty close. Uh, if you find that I've uh, missed something or something you'd like us to cover, let us know. Um, so, But anyway, for tonight, the last news item we talked about was an infographic by BuddyLoans.com. And the premise is, is, is basically a lot of people think that our next giant leap for mankind is going to be colonization of the moon. Now, this is, this is just the lead-in on their, on their page uh, for this piece. Checking the something. Taking my microphone—that's not a good thing. You make me nervous when you take my microphone. That's my I microphone make you right nervous. now. Nervous? Okay. Gee. I'm getting out of there, trying to make sure there's no binging noises. Okay. Oh, okay. All I'm right. doing my thinking job. Back <laughs> off. At the top of the infographic, it talks about the cost of space travel, and it mentions in in, in three little parts on this infographic the cost of lifting a pound from the Earth to low Earth orbit, lifting a pound from Earth to Mars landing, and lifting a pound from Earth to lunar surface, to a lunar landing. And the very first thing I want to talk about tonight in our commentary is that something doesn't seem right here, and, and clearly I must be missing something in the way they've this has been calculated. Um, but apparently it's based on um, the costs associated with current projects. For example, the $2,432 to send a pound into low Earth orbit is based on the Russian Soyuz and the ISS ferries. So they're probably doing an average of the various different um, craft that are used to send supplies and astronauts up to low Earth orbit. And that kind of makes sense. We know that's really, really expensive. Really, really expensive. Now, to go to the lunar surface, however, uh, their numbers there are based on current money rates for the Apollo program. Mm -hmm. And so their estimate to cover the 235,855 miles will cost us about $1,312,747 to ship that same pound to the lunar surface. But here's where it gets kind of weird. To go 139 million miles from the Earth's surface to the Martian surface, they're saying it's going to cost us $908,173 per pound. Yeah, yeah. I think somebody got their Now, that's based on curiosity. Now, the interesting thing that I see, I see here that strikes me as part of the problem in these calculations is that that trip to Mars seems way too low, based on the other two. Uh -huh. 
How can it be less expensive to send somebody to Mars than it is to send uh, somebody wonder, to the moon? I wonder if they flipped around those numbers. I don't think so. I think, I think there's just something in the calculations. Because here's the thing. When you look at the cost of Apollo, Apollo's costs included life support, included supplies, yeah, yeah. included water, included handling uh, waste material from the astronauts, spacesuits, all the stuff necessary for people. And if you're sending people to the moon, that number makes sense. The number that they're using to send to the Mars makes sense as well, because that's for a electronic device. When you get right down to it, that's sending an electronic device to Mars. <laughs> so there's no life support. There's no spacesuits. There's no people. Oh, my there's no, no wonder. No noisy bags of water yeah. to be transported. Yeah, that's us. So that would be that would make <laughs> sense to me one. why that number is so much lower okay. for the greater distance. They're, they're basing it on no people, yeah. They're not, yeah, right. There you so go. sending a pound of supplies to Mars. Well, that makes sense then. So that 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 kind of makes sense, but it still brings up an issue in my mind, and that is is that. Such a number, like true. Um, the next part of the infographic talks about the cost of traveling to the moon. Now, Space Adventures is estimated they can send their Alpha mission using a Soyuz spacecraft just to orbit the moon at a third of a billion a third of a billion dollars. That's roughly about thirty-three, three hundred thirty-three million. Okay. Okay. So that's not too bad, but that's just a flyby. It's just going around the moon and coming back. Now, Golden Spike has talked, and I've seen their craft. They're, they look like something out of that old sci-fi series, Lex. Huh. Do you remember that one? That was a real sexy series, sort of. Yeah. Uh, I missed it, eh? Yeah. Um, a sexy series, I missed it. Well, there were, it, it, was a, it was a British thing. Oh. And their humor, their humor is very different from American humor, yeah. so... Um, but anyway, Golden Spike says that using the Atlas V combined with the SpaceX Falcon, they can deliver um, for $1.5 billion. Now, NASA says that their SLS, Orion capsule, and Altair lunar lander will cost Two billion dollars to get to the moon and back, of course. Altair. Altair. Oh. Yeah, I know you like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I said, hey, they named you after one of you know. Uh huh. My world. Now we all know just how hostile the moon is. There's no air, nowhere to speak of at any rate. Yeah, yeah. There is, there are gases, hub, hugging the moon's surface, <laughs> but they're not useful to us. Uh, at least not immediately. Yeah, yes, yes, I know. You're thinking it's not like the gas that we propagate. Hugging, hugging the skin. Well, well, it does. It, it hugs. It hugs the moon's surface. Basically, it's 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 fairly close to the surface. I mean, in miles. All right. So anyway, NASA says they can deliver an estimated annual operation cost. Now that doesn't necessarily. I'm not. I'm betting that doesn't necessarily include the construction. I'll bet that's just the maintenance cost. For a year, 
is $7.35 billion. Now, what this thing's got to do is it's got to withstand small meteorites. It's got to withstand temperature changes. It's got to withstand radiation. It's also got to keep the lunar dust out. The lunar what? Lunar dust. Oh, I said duck. No. No, he's not up there yet. <laughs> now, big old aerospace, which has, has uh, proposed to drop their habitats on the moon, has uh, pitched that they can demonstrate annual rent of their living space for six people. Now, mind you, NASA's was four people. Bigelow's for six. It's a um, 110-meter cubed living space using a modified Bigelow 330 module. Their price tag is $456 million for the annual rent. That's a big far cry from the $7.3 billion. I know. Yay, you know, private so sector! There we go. Yeah, the, the costs are way different. But the, the habitat modules are also way different. Well, that's good. Then. NASA's are tin cans dropped on the surface of the moon and hope you don't dent them or bend them. And they're only good for two weeks at a time. Craziness. Because NASA does not have the capacity to send enough supplies to give them a year's thing. And here we go. We're looking at the food for a, for a year. A human adult requires around 800,000 calories a year to survive. At least that's what they say. Okay. Now, NASA's cost to transport that 800,000 calories in the course of lunar greenhouses, uh, five kilograms of lettuce, sweet potatoes, tomatoes, strawberries, all of this stuff to get up there so the greenhouses would function. NASA's estimating $5.9 billion. Golden Spike says they can deliver the whole package for roughly $1.7 billion. You know, you really got to wonder when the prices of, of the commercial space stuff is anywhere from from half to a fifth the cost of the government programs. Why are we sending stuff via government programs? When has the government ever done anything right in a government program? Have they ever done it? The only thing I can ever recall that they actually did right was they started the Social Security program. But they keep screwing it up anyway, so it's not a success yet. <laughs> right? Well, let's not get into that, man. <laughs> that's right this is a space show. Uh-huh. We'll stick with space. Yeah. Now, keep in mind, when we're talking food, that does not include water. Okay. All right? So that's just eating food, gnawing and chewing and well, ripping. and I would think that's the only kind I know of is yeah, food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Drinking food or water, because water is used for so many other things. The NASA price tag to ship, food. the NASA price tag to ship a year's worth of water up to the moon is $43 billion. And again, Golden Spike comes in with an estimate of about a fifth. Little, little more than a fifth of that at thirteen billion. And stuff is not cheap. Well, now, water weighs a lot. Yeah, water weighs a lot. Now, here's another thing. They talk about air and power. 
and the cost of shipping and assembling the oxygen and the stuff to maintain that oxygen for NASA is going to be $1.5 billion. Golden Spike thinks they can do it for $1.4 billion. Now that one, this is an interesting thing because in this one estimate, they're actually both fairly close. So there's, there's definitely something on there that, that comes interesting. And the, now when we talk about communications, the moon has only one mobile provider. That happens to be NASA. The LRO costs 3.2 cents per megabyte to send data back to Earth. On Earth, the best deal around is about 3 cents per megabyte. So those two prices are fairly legitimate. A one-minute phone call to Earth will cost 1.6 cents. An average one-minute call on Earth costs about 10 cents to Europe and 3 cents in the, U in the U.S. So the price are not too far off. I mean, the phone call thing is a bit pricey, but that, that's kind of cool. So, the total cost for NASA to take us to the moon, $57.8 billion. NASA rockets, lunar gardens, and the NASA moon base. Now, the Golden Spike says use our rockets, use lunar gardens, and the Bigelow Shelter. They believe we can do a one-year mission to, or a one-year colony on the moon of, of uh, four to six people for $16.6 billion. Again, we're right in that range of about a little more than one-fifth of the cost of the NASA program. Okay. Well, see, this is why we've been led to believe we can't do it. Right. But even so, there is a major challenge that I think we're all missing in this whole, this whole presentation because it fails on, on one very important point. All of these numbers are based on the NASA way of doing things. You throw some tin cans or you throw some pre-built habitats up there and you resupply them for a year. Now, even these costs are somewhat reasonable when compared to past program costs of other systems like the space shuttle, which was billions of dollars per launch, or a billion dollars a launch. Now, the thing that I think we're missing is that all of these are based on providing an, app, an environment with a living standard at or above what an average home would have on Earth a gleaming technological marvel with lots of robotics and automated systems that do so many things for you. Mm -hmm. so and I really wonder if that isn't why these costs are so high and also why the stays have to be so short. In all the documentation that NASA provides, they talk about visiting a base on the moon for two-week visits at a max at a time with an average of six months in between. Okay, so they go up for two weeks and then they leave for six months. Yeah. 
Uh, and you're still spending $53 billion for that year's work. Crazy. And I think there's a whale of a better way to do this. And that happens to be treat it like a real frontier. Yeah. Drop them on there and leave them. One of the biggest costs that they have listed here um, has to do with water. The idea of shipping 10.6 tons of water to the moon because they're going to consume it, I really think, is a big cluster foul up. And the reason being that we have skills to recycle a large portion of the water that we take with us. Already the ISS has a urine recycler. They're already capturing moisture out of the air. They're capturing a lot of stuff out of the air, but yet still they have to ship a boatload of water up to the ISS every, couple, every month or so. So something is wrong with the picture. And I think the key thing about that picture is the heavy-duty reliance on technology. In a realistic sense, there are aspects of technology that we need to rely on. We've got to have fans. You've got to have a rocket to get there. You've got to have a spacesuit to survive between the rocket and your habitat. Okay? But there are other aspects of the environment that don't have to cost that much, that don't need to be high-tech. I did another short article somewhere. I, I wish I could remember where it was. I'd pull it up. Where I talked about the idea that a frontier does not correlate to a middle-class house. And it's my supposition that it shouldn't. The frontier needs to be a place of hardy people. Now, a second thing that I think we mess up on is, is that when you look at the structure and function of the NASA base, and even what Golden Spike is talking about delivering, they're talking about a fully functional science station. And i got to tell you, a functioning science station is not a colony. It just isn't. Um, and the lunar greenhouses they're talking about taking are hydroponic systems, which means you do not have a closed loop. You are constantly, that's why we have to send 10.6 tons of, of water uh, to, up there, because you're going to need 3.13 tons of that just to replenish the greenhouse. But in reality, the earth, for millions of years, has had pretty much the same amount of water all over the planet. It evaporates, gets rained back down, evaporates again, gets rained back down, goes through plants, goes through animals. And it's my suspicion and my belief that these two key principles, that while they're trying to recycle the water, 
They can't because the chemicals and the nutrients that go into the water for the hydroponics are not palatable for human consumption. They have to then be further filtered and prepared before humans can use them. The second thing is, is this assumption that you have to build a frontier based on technology. Getting there, you need the technology. Some of the basic survival systems, such as fans and, and lighting and things like this, we need to use the technology to meet those specific needs. But do we need to build a tin can? No. There are techniques that we can use to construct a base or what I would suspect is actually a, a, a home on the moon. And the neat thing about this is, is these techniques will work equally well on Mars. They'll work on Callisto or Titan. They would work on an asteroid, for that matter. And it's, it's techniques that we have been using for millennia, and that is caves. Now, granted, the moon's caves are huge, but I'm not talking using existing caves. I'm talking using mining, which has been around for thousands of years. We've been mining this earth forever. And the technology to understand the geological processes involved in using mining techniques on the moon are known and understood in great detail. There are books and videos and tutorials all over the website, including competitions, on using the existing tech or tools that, quite honestly, you know, a rock drill, an, you can get an electric rock drill for a little over $75 that you can use to drill blast holes on the moon. Now, why would you want to drill blast holes on the moon? Well, if you can land in a crater that's going to have sunshine enough to power anything through solar panels, or, heaven forbid, do something that might make a little more sense, like a closed-loop steam generator system, a lot more compact, a uh, lot easier to assemble and repair. Um, again, these are, these are a lot lower-tech solutions that if we embraced, average people could do these things. And this comes to the third point that I believe that NASA and a lot of the engineered solutions for space colonization miss. And that is, you cannot build an infrastructure in space without people. Can't be done. World powers throughout history have tried to establish colonies by throwing people and money at it without realizing that you have to build a colony. You cannot drop a colony on a, on a foreign land or a foreign body or a celestial body and, and have it thrive. It doesn't work. History has shown that. Go Google Jamestown and find out how many tries that one took to get 
even close to right. And they broke a boatload of rules. Look at, go, go Google, um, is it Botany, Botany Bay, I believe it was, in Australia, the uh, British penal colony, and how all of a sudden, suddenly, after a few years being there, or maybe it was about 10 years, uh, of getting regular supplies from, from Europe and Britain, uh, they were basically forgotten and had to survive in this new frontier without support from England. They did it, and shortly thereafter, uh, their markets exploded with um, cash crops in Australia that they hadn't expected, like wool and bunnies and kangas. Kangas. Kangaroos. Oh. Big bunnies. Big bunnies. Really big bunnies. Uh, they're more like rats, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Big, you know, rats. But the one thing that history Yeah. The one thing that history tells us. Look at the pilgrims. Look at the way we migrated from the various settlements in even prehistory. Wow. Now, government happened. government supports and has been generous to support exploration over the many hundreds hundreds of years. But no government has ever paid for a colony, ever. Never happened. It was always private enterprise or a community that creates a new colony. And this is where I think we, as a people, are making a very big mistake in all of these infographics, in the preparations, in the assumptions that when we go to the moon, when we go to Mars, when we go to Titan, when we reach Callisto, and when we push out beyond, that we can assume to take habitats ready configured, ready to rock and roll, and carry our music and our, and our history and our knowledge and our science and, and continue to do science for science sake, uh-uh, not going to happen, folks. And until we as a people and as, a, as an industry recognize that we've got to look at history for our lessons and rethink our greenhouses that we're going to put on the moon, our habitats that we want to put on the moon and Mars and Titan and Callisto, and eventually even Ganymede. I've seen proposals for Ganymede. And heaven forbid we should try and get to Venus. I mean, there are sweet spots, and there are places on all of these celestial objects, and we haven't even talked much about asteroids yet. We don't know much about asteroids yet. Yeah. When we look at it as a frontier, and we look at the idea of a colony rather than a base, the choices and the way that we live changes dramatically, especially when we look at the lessons of history. We've got the colonies that were attempted and, and some of which, a lot of which succeeded, but only after 75% uh, of those who came across to the New World died, either en route or after arriving here, and many died on ship before they got out of harbor. 
Sometimes the delays, you know, like today's aircraft, sometimes you have you have multiple hour delays. Well, back then, you didn't have just hours in delays. You had days and sometimes weeks before you got out of the harbor. Mm-hmm. And that messed with your food supplies. Yeah. And who are we to presume that we can control all of the details enough to say that we can build a habitat to perfection with a rocket to perfection and recent history of the current spate of challenges faced by SpaceX, by um, Angara, and the Soyuz. These are established programs that still accidents happen and things don't go perfect. We need to step back. We need to look at what it is to build a frontier and a colony and not a base run like a hotel. I although wish you, that would be cool. Although that would be cool. But the beauty of it is, I believe, I truly believe, that if we reapproached all of these challenges from the standpoint of looking at it like a colony, looking at it from the standpoint of it being a frontier, this dictates some changes in the way that we're doing things. For one thing, it means we don't go to Mars first. That is an absolute. We do not go to Mars first. We go to Mars. We just don't do it first. The idea being that we go to the moon first. For all the reasons that many of us have already read and and shared and copied and pasted and all that kind of good stuff. We go to the moon first. We go to the moon to learn how to live on the frontier. Mm -hmm. To learn how to eke out a living, to create a seed on the moon that can grow. I still have yet to see any proposal anywhere from any engineering approach, NASA or private, that supposes that it can be even more than 50% self-sufficient. Every single proposal on the table is dependent upon supplies from Earth. If we begin, if we were to rate the Earth of its resources at that level to attempt to supply colonies on in orbit, colonies on the moon, or even colonies to Mars, which would just be prohibitively expensive, just the cost of lifting those items, much less the cost of removing those items from our ecosystem, is, is asking for a disaster, worse than climate change. We have to look at creating seeds that embrace the environment's we find ourselves in on the frontier. Seeds that can grow from the resources that present us in situ without having to have the supplies lifted from Earth. As we move forward in a frontier, as we look at history at the frontiers of Australia, of the New World, and of the American West, you had people building infrastructure first farms, then towns, and from the towns you had businesses and merchandising grow, and from those businesses and merchandise you had industry begin to grow and expand. Without those people to serve as workers and providers of food, air, and water, 
all these wonderful visions of O'Neill cylinders and Dyson spheres and the colonies that they're talking about establishing with greenhouses. Ain't going to happen, folks. This is your reality check. I run the numbers, and every time I run the numbers, they come up way short. So what do Fifty we do? billion dollars to send four people to the moon for a two-week stay every six months. Won't work. It won't last. We need a way to build a frontier that we can send real people, not engineers, not scientists, but real people who go up and build homes. Because they want to live there. Because they want a new life. They want to they want something that they can build and be a part of building. This is our message here on the next space. The next space isn't just about rockets and coronal mass ejections and galactic cosmic rays and satellite um, swarms. It's about us getting off this rock we call Earth becoming a multi-planetary species and eventually moving beyond our solar system to become a multi, what's the word? Um, a multi, multi-stellar. Multi-stellar? Multi-stellar, multi-star. Visiting multiple oh. solar systems. Okay. And somewhere down in the next half a million years, assuming we don't blow ourselves up. Become guardians of the galaxy. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, there's an interesting parallel to that very thought. When we look at religious texts, and we look at who we are supposed to be, they always talk in terms of being stewards of the earth. Yeah. And for those of you who may not know what the term really stewards really of the earth that, means, anyway. <laughs> it means that we care for the earth. Now, don't don't get mistaken here that I'm some bleeding heart ecological uh, know-it-all. I don't think that we have that problem. But <laughs> there is a certain responsibility that we bear to become part of the earth rather than a consumer. And right now our society is, is headed down the direction of being nothing but consumers. We cannot hope to be guardians of our solar system, much less guardians of the galaxy. If we cannot take the time to learn what it means to live on a frontier again, to learn to appreciate the simpler things of life, to enjoy the ethereal quality of life that gives it its meaning, why do you think people love extreme sports? Because they feel that brief moment when their life could be over and that thrill of challenging. Adrenaline junkie. Hmm? An adrenaline junkie. That adrenaline junkie sensation of testing death. And I believe that we all crave it. We all have our own versions of that adrenaline rush. Some of us in, do so in gaming. Some of us find it in, in rush hour traffic trying to beat the crowd. Some of us find it in, in, in the, the thrill of, of writing that great American novel. But if we can't recapture that sense of frontier, that sense of recognizing the ethereal nature of life is short. 
and we have to make the best of it and stop consuming as much and start shepherding the earth and stewarding it, we ain't never going to make it into space. And now I'm starting to lecture, folks. So we're going to start closing up here. Keep in mind, this is the next space. We talk about the news of the week. We share, we share commentary about what's happening in space, some of the news that we get, some of the news we don't get. And we hope that you will question us, challenge us, I dare you, because it's in those questions and in those challenges that we make progress. KWOD Radio, Blog Talk Radio, this is the next space. I'm Joe. No, I'm Joe. You're, You're Joe. Al. I'm Al. Okay. <laughs> She's Al. I'm Joe. This is the next space. We're tired. Apparently. I'm not sure what his real name is. <laughs> we will see you next week, folks, on the next space. Check out the recorded version of this when it goes online in, 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 about, an uh, hour. in about an hour. Um, archive forever and ever and ever as long as we're online well as long as the earth and our <laughs> server exists it'll be there it'll be there good night folks we'll see you next week this is KWOD Radio and I'm going to take up highlights of the things that are going to be coming up this week Oh, I get my calendar up. So we've got some interesting things. Of course, we're doing our manuscripts, two books in six, well, eight weeks. We're already halfway through that. Let's see what else we got coming up. We got Kamikaze Toys Grand Opening. We got a brand new store out in. Lishfield Park. That's Kamikaze Toys Grand Opening. That's on July 19th. Take a look. We also have two books coming out. Uh, Giant Launch. The Apocalypse. Going to be in a worldwide launch, sure. We also have the publishing marketing meetup. 1230 to 230. Location still being uh, because we took off on in June, whether or not uh, we're going to be at the same place or not. So we'll let you know. You know where I am. I'm on Facebook at pj.holstrand, and that's two T's, H-U-L-T-S-T-R-A-N-D. That's my name. Don't wear it out. We've got some virtual book tours. We've got one tomorrow for Jamie White. And we got one on the 21st for Morgan Moss. And that, of course, is going to be on the Changing Face of Publishing website, or what we call, as soon as I can move this, uh, Reader's Cubby. So take a look at that blog, because, you know, I, I put a lot of authors in there all week long. 
super business summer thing. Watch out. <laughs> yeah, we got lots of cool stuff this week, and and uh, but I tell you, San Diego Comic Con is coming up. That's a biggie. That's a biggie. This last weekend was the Romance Novel Convention with Jimmy Thomas. That's our our buddy, who was uh, our favorite model. And San Diego Comic Con, 24th through 27th. That's coming up at the end of this month. That's July. Also, uh, Geeks for Good Charity is still taking stuff. Still taking stuff to help that fundraiser. Uh, and that's going to be at Gotham City. It's going to be the actual uh, charity fundraiser. And that's going to be at Gotham City Comics and Coffee, West Main Street in Mesa. That's going to be from 10 in the morning till noon. And then afternoon, from noon to 4, it's going to be actually at the center. Where one reason why we're fundraising, in order to keep it open. So that's uh, Saturday 26th. Then we got uh, Miracle Con Gaming, Gaming Con, August 2nd, uh, 3rd, 2nd and 3rd, Saturday and Sunday, and Miracle Con, take a, if you want to find any of this information, definitely, you know, I have a lot of cons uh, listed right on the website at thewa.net, that's a the, I think you know how to spell the, T-H-E. WAD, W-O-D, dot net. That's the net. Take a look at the calendar of cons and events. You click there. I got a calendar there that I actually keep up for you guys. So, click on it, find out more information. Find out cool stuff that's coming up here. We got Barnes & Noble. They're having a really cool book signing. Sci-Fi Day. Sci-Fi Day, Barnes & Noble Metro Center. That's North Metro Parkway East, and that is August 2nd from 11 to 1. Our, our very good friend and author, T.M. Williams, is going to be out there signing and autographing and doing her thing. Also, Dino Con, Phoenix Dino Con is going to be at 3 p.m., starting 3 p.m. on August 2nd. 3 to 9 at the Phoenix Center of the Arts. That's North 3rd Street in Phoenix. And that's it for the next three weeks, as far as I can see. So you guys stay cool, and I'll talk to you next Sunday. If not before, this is Radio, and this is Patty Holstein signing out. <laughs>